welcome. We're here to talk about bloodborne viruses, STIs and HIV in GP land. How to approach this topic. My name is Miriam Grotowski and I'm a GP from rural New South Wales and I have an interest in sexual health and medical education. I'm also the chair of the GP STI Working Party for New South Wales Health. I'd just like to acknowledge that this podcast is being filmed on various Aboriginal lands across our wonderful country. I'd just like to acknowledge Elders past, present and emerging and any Aboriginal people that are joining us today. New South Wales is a world leader in responding to bloodborne viruses and STIs with a strong partnership helping this. The partnership is between government, community organisations, clinicians, academics and those with lived experience. Together, these people combine a driving force in this response. The contribution of GPs is key to our success. With primary care diagnosing and treating the majority of all STIs in New South Wales. Together, we've had considerable success in reducing rates of HIV and Hep C. But you know, those STIs, they're still proving pretty difficult to manage. STI infections continue to rise. Of particular concern is the number of syphilis diagnoses that we see in the New South Wales general population. Unfortunately, this has been accompanied by a rise in congenital syphilis cases. These are entirely preventable outcomes and they could be improved by increased antenatal screening for syphilis. New South Wales Health has a goal of eliminating hepatitis C virus as a public health concern by 2028. New Hep C treatments are really effective with greater than 95% cure rates and they're also associated with minimal side effects. We're also committed to reducing hepatitis B infection and improving the health outcomes for those who live with hepatitis B. So, with all of this in mind, today we hope to explore which patient groups are most at risk, which of ours in general practice do we really want to focus on and why? If we're going to focus on some patients, how do we start the conversation? How do we do it respectfully? How do we normalise these discussions as part of our everyday practice? Importantly, we'll hear about the patient experience and how this can inform our GP practice going forwards. Now, clearly, I can't do all of this on my own. So I have a wonderful panel to support me today. I'll let them introduce themselves. Let's start with you, Kim. Hi, Miriam. Thanks for the opportunity. My name's Kim Collins. I work um, as a sexual health physician in a couple of rural parts of New South Wales or regional parts of New South Wales, so on the mid-north coast and also down uh, in the Murrumbidgee. I started life as a GP um, and worked for about a decade in general practice but moved sideways into sexual health and maintain an interest in trying to support the GP workforce um, to, to do sexual health uh, well and uh, to know where they can go for some support. Thanks, Kim. That's great. Great to have you along. Um, next, we might hear from Catherine. Thanks, Miriam. My name's Catherine McQuillan. I'm a hepatology nurse practitioner for Western New South Wales Local Health District. 
Um, I'm passionate about providing access to healthcare for rural patients. I'm really largely focused on the elimination of hepatitis C, so spending my time testing at-risk populations in the community setting. Um, and I've just started using a mobile van to get out, out into the outreach community, utilising the point-of-care testing machine, dry blood spot testing and venipuncture testing. Um, I provide those assessments, diagnosis, education and support and treatment to clients with hepatitis C. Great, Catherine. So a wealth of experience there that we'll be tapping into today. Um, Murray, can we hear from you next, please? Thanks, Miriam. Hi, everyone. I'm Murray. I've spent the majority of the last two years working in youth advocacy. Um, I'm currently working now in family, domestic and sexual violence policy, but I'm really looking forward to sharing some of the concerns I've heard from young people I've worked with in accessing sexual health care. Great, great to have you along. And joining us um, last but by no means least is Harrison today. Hi, um, thank you for letting me uh, take part uh, today. So my name is Harrison Sarasola and I work for ACON, which is the New South Wales based LGBTQ health organisation. So at ACON, I'm the team leader of the peer education team. Uh, and our teams focus specifically on supporting gay, bi, queer men, trans and cis across New South Wales to access the latest sexual health and HIV information they require to make informed and empowered decisions about their sexual health. Um, it's peer-led work uh, that's driven through free community workshops, forums, events and online engagement. A lot of that is also volunteer driven. Um, and I'm also a community member myself. And I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney. So really looking forward to also bringing that perspective to the conversation today as well. All right, let's look at Dylan. So Dylan is 35 years old and um, over the years he's had a few non-professional tattoos, some while he was in prison and some um, in the community. Recently he had a new tattoo only two weeks ago, and he's coming to see you today because that area has become really red and sore, and he wants to know whether it needs some treatment. So, Dylan's in your practice. How are we going to raise the topic of hepatitis C testing with Dylan? What do you recommend, Catherine? Um, well, it's a good sign that he's come into your surgery and he's um, requesting antibiotics. He wants you to have a look at that. And I think, you know, you're obviously going to be talking about how you get a bacterial infection from um, these non-professional tattoos, whether it's unsterile, um, you know, needles or um, that kind of things. And especially in prison, you know, there's not a lot of sterile equipment being used. Um, so, I guess uh, it's easy to talk about because they've got a bacterial infection currently and then you can say, well, actually viruses can be transmitted in this very same way and they're microscopic and you can't see them. And sometimes you don't even get symptoms when you catch a virus and these are like hepatitis B or hepatitis C or HIV. So, um, you know, you could just say... Uh, we're going to give you the antibiotic, but how about we do some testing to make sure that you haven't caught any of these other viruses? Yeah, great. So some really practical points. How do you reckon that would go down, Murray? I think oh, that's a great approach that Catherine mentioned. I think it would make Dylan feel like he understood the information around his health and why the doctor was recommending this testing, um, which, yeah, I think that's important. 
Yeah, Harrison, anything to add? Yeah, I think the tattoos themselves are the inroad to building trust and rapport with um, Dylan. So those those tattoos might be culturally significant. They might have particular importance to Dylan. So I would just say, you know, like all topics that we bring up um, with a client or a patient, you just want to kind of obviously just be delicate and sensitive around the significance of those tattoos. Um, and that by showing that interest, um, that could also lead you really nicely into a conversation around, um, you know, asking Dylan how the tattoo, he got the tattoo, um, where did he get the tattoo, what was used to provide the tattoo, which then again gives you a, another nice stepping stone to then start to talk about um, transmission of, of STIs and bloodborne viruses. The other thing as well um, that is a really important point um, that Catherine raised that I think is really good broadly to talk about is asymptomatic STIs um, because I think a lot of people especially when I was growing up out west um, the assumption was that you only needed to get tested if you had symptoms and that's still for a lot of people uh, in the community in the broader community is still very much um, a way of thinking about when to get tested um, so I think just for GPs just keep that in the back of the mind as well is talking about building in testing as a part of a regular sexual health routine. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. So, Kim, some of the GPs out there aren't necessarily feeling particularly comfortable in this hepatitis C space. What, what advice have you got for them? Hepatitis C, I think, is one of the great sort of stories of, of modern medicine and how we can actually cure the vast bulk, like over 95% of people with hepatitis C, we can actually cure them and get rid of the virus. I think it's a remarkable story and one we should all be trying to do our level best to get as many people in for testing and treatment as we possibly can. The treatment is so simple now. You don't necessarily need to do a genotype. You do need to make sure they're not cirrhotic because that can affect the length of time of treatment. But the, the, the treatments are so much easier to take than when, when we first started treating people with the interferon back in the day with the injections. What, what do you think, Catherine? <laughs> Yeah, so Kim, I'll just um, ask you, I know that information is out there. Where can a GP get it? Where would they go to look up that information? So there's a really good um, ASHRAM decision-making tool in hepatitis C. So we've got one for syphilis, we've got one for hepatitis C as well. There's one for PrEP also. So the ASHRAM site is actually really helpful. These resources are also available on the STI programs unit um, website. So there's lots of places where you can go to. Um, to, to get that information. Uh, That's great. Thanks, Kim. And Catherine? Um, can I just mention as well, on the ASHAM website, there's a 721 GP management plan for hep C infection. Um, so there's an example or a template online that you can use to address the various issues surrounding hep C, um, so the assessment, the management and the lifestyle education. So if you create that GP management plan, um, that'll sort of walk you through that. Um, and if you're working at an Aboriginal medical service, um, ASHAM also have a Communicare user manual for viral hepatitis. So it teaches you how to code and access the viral hep information appropriately so you can navigate the software to use it to your advantage in coding correctly and then having the ability to run reports from those um, software programs and manage your hep C patients and hep B patients or, or any of your patients really appropriately. 
Yeah, that's really practical, isn't it? You know, that I know one of the things that GPs uh, worry about is the, the time it takes to create such um, resources, but the fact they've already been done for us, um, guided no doubt by GPs who practice a lot in this area, we can download those into our software and keep them as templates. And then there's that ready reckoner as a resource. So that's a great tip. Thanks, Catherine. Um, what other points do you think it's really important? I know Kim's raised the, the really important fact that, you know, we have treatments out there for hepatitis C that are greater than 95% cure rates. And like Catherine said before, you know, in a time effective way, we don't really have many success stories in general practice that we can sort of hang our coat on, but that one's pretty good. Um, any other points that we think our GPs listening out there might uh, benefit from hearing? regarding hepatitis C? Uh, yep. So there's also um, a thing called EC Australia Partnership. Um, so it's a partnership between the Burnett Institute and the Paul Ramsey Foundation, and it's been providing grants and research projects working towards the elimination goals for viral hep in Australia. So it provides sort of education tools, workforce development, a whole range of um, projects that they've been working on. And there's a great primary care toolkit, which you, we can access at the bottom of the page um, after the podcast. And so that helps um, practice nurses and um, GPs to become champions within within their own primary care setting and to use that toolkit on how to do the file audits, how to recall patients, how to find the missing millions that we, we know are across Australia um, that still actually need to be tested and treated. Um, so that's um, just another really good resource um, that I would suggest to have a look at the EC Australia primary care toolkit. And, and, you know, it's really important for our GPs listening to remember, too, that um, we're getting some expert advice because we're using some of these toolkits, but we'll be the ongoing constant for that patient, you know, around their hepatitis C. We're there for them before we got this diagnosis. We're going to be there for them after this diagnosis. So it's really important that we're involved and aware of the treatment that they're having and what, what, that, what that could mean for them. So I think it's really important that the GPs don't sort of push it off to another service and then think it's all done and dusted and not keep themselves involved and updated in this area. Catherine? And I think um, another really important thing is um, there's still this historical misunderstanding around hep C treatment in the community. So we know that the pegylated interferon and ribavirin that we used to treat people for six to 12 months, it was horrific, it was injections once a week, caused lots of side effects, neutropenia, anemia, a whole range of mood disturbance in the clients. And we were very restricted on who we could actually treat back in the day. So 10 years ago when I started, we couldn't treat people with mental illness. We could not treat people with drug use histories. So now in 2016, with the direct acting antivirals, um, we now have very limited, um, all of those restrictions are gone from mental health. So we can treat pretty much everybody except people who are pregnant um, I think that's about, yeah. So like there's um, a lot less restrictions on who we should be treating and we want to treat everybody. We want to pe treat people who are injecting drugs to, to reduce the transmission pool of infection and, and lower transmission rates amongst people as well. So it's, it's really about offering um, 
treatment to everybody nowadays. And because it's an eight or 12 week course, there's two medications co-formulated into one pill. And you take that one pill for 12 weeks or there's three pills a day for eight weeks. So it's really simplified. Mm. And the side effects, about 12% of people, I think, in the um, sort of um, research say they had side effects, um, headache, tiredness and nausea. But I I always say, look, 90% of people don't have side effects. 90% of people feel better because we're squashing down their viral load while they're on treatment. Um, and they're manageable side effects, headache, tiredness, you know, they're, they're, you can just get on with your day. So um, I think it's about spreading the word that this treatment's available, it's easy, it's simplified and getting it into the community and to GPs to let them know that it's not actually hard to treat anymore. That's great and great information and a really positive story, isn't it, sort of for our patients? So. Okay, any other tips or tricks around that, Dylan, and his case? Um, So I just wanted to mention the importance of testing as um, a gateway to preventing liver cancer as well. So um, we really need to frame that up as a cancer preventative strategy because I know GPs are um, sometimes worried about um, the rate of testing and increasing testing and being audited. But what we know is if we have hepatitis B or hepatitis C and it goes untreated and people develop a liver cancer, liver cancer is carrying a high mortality rate and it's our second fastest growing incidence rate of all cancers um, and it's the fastest growing cause of cancer-related death in Australia. And just to mention that our Aboriginal population are overrepresented where it's our third most common cause of cancer-related death compared to seventh in our non-Aboriginal communities. So it's it's really important to... Um, not be scared of increasing testing because we actually need to test um, patients to prevent uh, cancer in the long run. Um, and also just to mention, once people are on their treatment, there's really no on monitor, on treatment monitoring um, like there used to be. And we basically do a three-month post-treatment check of their hep C RNA PCR test to make sure that they've had that sustained biological response. So it's really important to know that once the person's had their eight or 12-week treatment that they've had a three-month break off treatment had the test and if they're negative they've definitely cured if they're positive we need to reinvestigate what's happened along the way whether they um, missed a few doses or if they're one of the five percent of people who don't um, get the cure from that first treatment and there is a retreatment option so regardless of whether people don't cure because of um, the they're the five percent who don't respond or if they reinfect so if they've had ongoing drug use or at-risk um, behaviours, injecting or whatever it was, then we re-offer treatment. So there's no finite limit on treatment in Australia. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Catherine. All right. So just a few practical points about patients in general practice land that we're talking and encouraging, talking to and encouraging to have sexual health checks or bloodborne virus checks. You know, how do we help them? I know in general practice where I work, we don't have a pathology lab right next to us. So how, you know, do we take the bloods ourselves? And in some instances, I would do that for some patients because I think there's a high chance that that patient will um, go ahead and have the test done. I might provide them with a urine jar to get the testing for 
of chlamydia and gonorrhea done then and there and give them a nice brown paper bag so it's not obvious to everybody in the um, waiting room what they're doing and off to the toilet they go. We have a sign post in, in our um, toilets about how to do self-collected swabs or how to do a urine test up there for patients to see. What about the other people in the panel. Any other suggestions about how we enable the actual practical part within a general practice of getting these tests done? Um, so I think it's really important to um, acknowledge that people may have really poor venous access, especially when it comes to bloodborne virus. If they've been using for a long time, they might have um, difficult scarred up veins. So there are alternatives um, and there is a dry blood spot testing kit that you can order online. It was initially for HIV, but it's for HIV and hep C PCR. And that's run through um, St Vincent's and Shields. Um, so people can access that, but a lot of liver clinics in your local area have access to dry blood spots. So if, if that's something that you think is a risk and it's a barrier to somebody being tested, there is dry blood spot. And we've also got an Australian national study happening at the moment through the University of New South Wales Kirby Institute, and it's called the National Hep C point of care testing study and we've got these great gene expert machines and we can do a hep C PCR test through a finger prick um, point of care and within one hour find out that hep C PCR result. So um, there's there's places all across Australia now um, that are running this program and it's generally in liver clinics, community health, Aboriginal health services um, where people can access point of care, a finger prick test and then you know within an hour you can get that patient back and um, sort of talk through the process of treatment. So I guess um, that's not available in GP surgeries, but I guess if those clients are in your surgery, then you could link them into another service to try and access those services and support them. Absolutely. Yeah, Harrison? I was just going to take a step a little bit back um, around talking about substance support more broadly. So um, if, for instance, a client is LGBTQ and a part of our communities, ACON does have pivot point and we do also have substance support services that we can also provide um, community members with. We also do have a program called Method, which is for gay, bisexual, queer men who have sex with men. Um, that is a peer navigator service that um, can support clients who are looking to uh, reflect on substance use and looking to seek support potentially, and, and also maybe not seeking to, hmm. to, to kind of um, make any changes around that. But I think, you know, if we're talking about hep C transmission and also treatment, but we think that there are additional barriers to taking up that treatment or even accessing testing, services like Pivot Point, like ACON Substance Support Services and our self-assessment tools and peer navigation that we have can also be really invaluable to clients as well. So I'll provide that information to everyone as well. Thanks, Harrison. All right. So GPs don't need to be experts at everything, you know, but they do need to have a go for our patients' sake and for our community's sake. And we've heard from our panel some absolutely fantastic suggestions about how GPs can help make this part of normal practice, how we can help 
make our patients feel more comfortable in this space and how we can start those conversations to help try and reduce the numbers of STIs and bloodborne viruses that go untreated in our community. So going to each member in the panel, I just want you to remember uh, to give our GPs something that they can take home, something to remember going forward. And we might start with you first, Murray. What would you like to say to the GP group out there as they finish this podcast? Thanks, Miriam. Uh, thinking about the last part of the podcast discussion, I think there's a really great opportunity here to make appointments educational and to explain to patients why certain questions or information is useful. Uh, a lot of young people I've spoken with say that these kind of approaches make them feel quite empowered to look after their own health and they can walk away with a greater understanding of a certain health issue and the options that are available to them then and moving forward. That's great, yeah. So they're an opportunity for education as well. I think that's a really good point to remember. Thanks, Murray. Kim, what would you say to the GP group out there? I was just reflecting on this and writing a few little notes. I would encourage people to embrace the Shakespearean nature of humans and their behaviours, to be... <laughs> able to practice your poker face because some people will tell you some pretty wild stuff um, but the underlying reason for doing this is to kind of enable them to empower themselves and us to help them to, to maintain good health and to, mm. to um, have treatment available to them that will make a huge difference to their life and this last case of hep C is an, an example of that the treatment of HIV is an example of that so yeah give it a burl it's fun it's interesting and it beats diabetes and cardiovascular disease. <laughs> Thanks for that, Kim. All right, Harrison. Yeah, I'm just going to build on what Kim just said and just say it's all about relationships. You know, you wouldn't knock on the door to your next door neighbour who you haven't spoken to, even though you've been living there for five years and asked for a cup of sugar, or maybe you would. I don't know the sort of person you are. But you do want to really spend that time building that relationship and that trust because um, that's the currency that you're going to then be trading with with a person when you have to bring up uncomfortable or um, confronting topics with a hmm. client. So really work on that relationship um, as, a, as a priority would be my advice. Great. And Catherine, you get the final word. Yep. Um, so I actually have a few couple of top tips. Um, so I just want GPs to think about um, which patients um, we can increase testing to. to. Um, and whether GPs are treating or if they want to refer, whatever really supports them um, and the patient the best, whichever sort of process works, um, there's loads of support networks out there. Um, think about that uh, viral hepatitis can lead to advanced liver disease and liver cancer and that we really need to provide some wraparound surveillance around those, um, those disease states as well. And be aware of your own biases and what we bring to these encounters each time um, because our clients have, um, you know, felt a lot of stigma and discrimination from healthcare workers in the past. So just to be mindful of that. Um, and of course, I forgot to mention earlier that the Primary Health Network, you know, they're out there to help support GPs. You can create a PIP project around hepatitis. Um, and um, so there's sort of opportunities to work with your PHN to um, do PIP projects and um, 
yeah, to help towards the elimination of hep C. And finally, we just want more passionate GPs around advanced liver, dis- uh, liver disease fields um, because I think the liver disease field has been left behind and usurped by cardiac disease and sexy lung disease and renal disease, but really there's not a lot of people out there you know, deeply passionate about liver disease. So it'd be great to get more GPs on board. Thanks for that, Catherine. And we definitely can see and hear your passion in that space as well. So some really good advice. For GPs out there that are wondering how to link their patients in with peer support networks, just don't forget that for patients... um, with IV drug use histories that newer is available for the patients from a culturally and linguistically diverse background there's the Mars service it's a multicultural HIV and hepatitis service and for general information for both um, peers um, and GPs there's a hepatitis New South Wales site so don't forget to access those. We've been discussing lots of useful resources uh, during this podcast today and you may have heard mention SHIL, which is a sexual health information link. Don't forget that that's a great resource for GPs, 9 to 5.30, Monday to Friday, a doctor or nurse at the end of the line to answer your questions. And the information about SHIL and other resources mentioned throughout today's podcast will be available below the podcast. So thanks for joining us today. And I really want to put out my thanks to the panel members. We've really heard from uh, experts who have lived experience. We've heard from those that work at the coalface in hepatitis C and sexual health. And really, my biggest thanks is to you GPs that are out there doing this work. We hope that this podcast has encouraged you to get in, have a go and know where there are resources that you can access easily if you've got any questions around sexual health and bloodborne virus. Thanks to New South Wales Health for its efforts in continuing to try and reduce the sexually transmitted infections and bloodborne virus infections across uh, New South Wales. And together we can do this, guys. It's easier than you think. Just have a go.